listeners, this is PSG Talk contributor Mark Damon, and this is PSG Small Talk for Sunday, January 27th, 2019. Slightly different show today in the sense that I'm going to start the show by quickly covering the last crazy week of, uh, of Paris Saint-Germain football, and then I'm going to throw it to an interview that I did with Rich Allen. Yes, you heard that right. The Rich Allen uh, of Twitter fame and uh, of French Football Weekly and Get French Football News. Not exactly, um, let's put it this way, they haven't been our biggest fans and we have not necessarily been their biggest fans over the years, but I feel like in in an effort to be bipartisan, for lack of a better term, to have good conversations with people and to look at different perspectives. I thought his perspective was a good one to have on the show. Now, be forewarned, we are not going to talk really any Paris Saint-Germain because I felt like that would be a waste of time hearing us arguing with each other. Maybe that's for another show. But we talk a lot of Liga, and we basically cover this entire season of Liga, and we talk about the other three major teams in France. We talk about the crises at Monaco and Marseille. We talk about uh, Olympic Lyonnais. We talk about uh, up-and-coming players in the league. We talk about how the league is perceived. It's a really good interview, and Rich is a very nice guy. Um, so I-, I appreciated having him on, and I think it's a great sort of uh, midway through the year look at the league that PSG are currently in <laughs> before, the, of course, the Super League comes. And we'll... And I hope you'll enjoy it. But for now, let's start with the latest of what's going on here. There's a lot to talk about, and I'm going to try to do it in a quick amount of time because we kind of I kind of go long with Rich, and I want to leave some room for that. Um, Neymar is hurt again. I'm not going to go into any sort of big picture discussion of this and what it means in the long term or even in the medium term. Because we simply don't know how injured he is. There are reports that I kind of think are guesswork rather than based off of any sort of information or medical science. It's pretty clear just based on the timeline that he's probably not going to um, make the first leg against Manchester United. I think that's been widely reported. And I think that's basically being reported off of guesswork and pretty educated guesswork let's be fair because he still apparently is in a walking boot and they needed 10 days to really take a look at it and wait for the swelling to go down and see how bad of an injury it is now if it's a smaller fracture there probably wouldn't be a need for surgery but there'd probably be about a month or so where he'd have to stay off of it and that would take a while to come back but he'd probably be back at some point during the season If it's the kind of fracture he had against Marseille last year, he's probably out until May if if coming back at all. So that's how wide the spectrum is. And that's why I don't want to really start talking about it until we have a definitive uh, until we have a definitive uh, deal one way or the other, whether he's hurt for a month or hurt for four months or we don't know. So it's better to just not say anything too much about it. But in the short term, and probably for the first leg against Manchester, almost probably 80%, 
PSG are going to have to figure out a way to get out of uh, Old Trafford against a team that has won seven or eight straight games, that it seems to have its mojo back, has Paul Pogba playing at an all-world level, and PSG are going to have to adjust without their best player. Now, the good news is that Marco Verratti's injury is not nearly as bad as it was originally thought. He will probably be back for that game. So you'll be with your second best player. And if you incorporate a Leandro Paredes, and we'll get to him and uh, my sort of mini meltdown over the weekend about this, um, you have a solid mid. You have some solid midfield options. Whether Paredes is coming off the bench or whether he's starting, you have Marquinhos. You can throw in there. Draxler is probably moving into the Neymar role as a playmaker out of that sort of attacking midfield mold. So, really. We're starting to see the next three weeks, you know, two and a half weeks pretty clearly here. We kind of know what this is going to look like for all intents and purposes. And I am of the opinion that this PSG team is talented enough to beat Manchester United over two legs, even without Neymar. Now, if they have to play Barcelona or Bayern Munich without Neymar, there's a very good chance they're probably going to lose just because they just they don't have enough attacking flair in that sense. And defensively, they're still not 100% sound. But Manchester United is still a winnable tie, a very winnable tie, even without Neymar. And they haven't been to the quarterfinals since 2016. So it would be an accomplishment without Neymar to get through this tie. So PSG still have everything to play for. They just beat Rennes at the Parc des Princes 4-1. to They have have 56 points out of 20 games played in Ligue 1. And they still, the way they're going, have a really good opportunity to make this a very magical Ligue 1 season. So the season is not over. It, it's not the sky is falling. But at times this week, you kind of felt like the sky was falling. And... Part of that was this sort of Leandro Paredes saga. And it, it in the, I guess, what is the definition of a done deal? And I think finally, maybe finally, or maybe not, after all these years of following these transfers, we should all know that <laughs> a transfer is only done when the team announces it on their social media or through a press release. Anything else is secondhand and speculative or very highly informed, but not completely 100% officially done. And we thought this deal would be done Wednesday, thought it would be done Thursday. It was confirmed on Friday by a whole bunch of media outlets. And then we expected the announcement sometime Saturday or sometime today. And the announcement never came, and then there was rumors that there were complications, and I sort of sniffed it out that there were going to be some complications here. And I think that I think that in the end they will get this deal done. I think that we're too far down the line, and I think that they just don't have general options, and I think that. There is a lack of patience on my part included, but I'm really um, confused about this transfer also in a lot of ways because this is a deal they could have done two weeks ago. 
They could have gotten this sort of fee two weeks ago from Zenit. And they could have had him. They could have incorporated him. And it wouldn't have to be this difficult. Right now, we are about to reach midnight in France, meaning there are only four more days left in the window. Now, for all intents and purposes, Paredes is indeed signed. But he's not officially signed. And that also sort of holds you back from trying to get a second, which apparently is the goal. And they're trying to maybe make offers for Idrissa Gouillet or Alon. I don't think that's going to happen, but Gouillet sounds reasonable. If they really want to do it, I think they can get that deal done. But it's all the political, it's about the political will in that situation. But why did it take so long? And this is where I've defended Enrique for a while especially in the summer because I thought he got sort of a raw deal for a really poor hand that he was dealt. I don't think the hand in this case was that poor. I think he had an opportunity in early January to make a decisive, quick move for a player like Leandro Paredes. And I think he held too many balls in the air they were looking at Weigel, they were looking at Gouillet, they're looking at Allen, they're looking at this guy, they're looking at that guy. They're trying to get a Frankie de Jong deal done, which we're not going to talk about because it's not worth my time. All those things you're trying to do at once, but you need a midfielder now. And it, it it's like you held it off to the last possible minute. And now you're in the last week and you're finalizing one deal and now you have to make a, try to make a decent enough move for a second midfielder. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But I just feel like in this situation, once Marco Verratti went down, they really had to rush. And at the moment, I don't think they rushed well enough. I don't think they did the necessary work beforehand to make a simple, easy signing. Like, again, if you're going to do the Paredes thing, do the Paredes thing from the beginning. Work on it, work on it, work on it. Target it and make sure you get it done. And I just feel like the fact that we're dragging this along means that this was sort of not a rushed signing, but they, I don't know. It's not a simple thing to try to analyze. I just feel like they needed to get a midfielder in before the 15th, before the 20th. And right now it's about to be January 28th, which will probably be when they sign Paredes. Or they may not. Who the hell knows at this point? Again, until it's official, it's not official. And that's holding them up from doing a whole bunch of other possible moves they could make. So hopefully he's signed by tomorrow and we can all this can all be a moot point. Um, today... A uh, rough first half. Um, PSG scored early on a Cavani header off a really good pass out of the uh, out of the midfield and into Di Maria who crossed it in. Then not then Ren tied the game and it was kind of a rough physical game like the Strasbourg game was. But there's something in common between the two. These league on teams are clearly going to play physically against Paris Saint-Germain, more physically than they would against, let's say, a, a, a random opponent that they play every week. That's not exactly news to anybody, nor should it come as any sort of shock. You know, this is how they're going to play. And 
as long as the league and officials allow these teams this liberty to play this way, then that's what's going to happen. And if Lee Gunn wants to succeed, and I'm just going to lay this out fairly simply. I'm not going to bitch. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to yell. I'm just going to lay this out really simply for Lee Gunn. If you would like to have a successful league like La Liga and the Premier League and to a lesser degree Serie A and the Bundesliga, if you want to be talked about in those um, in those circles and not be called a farmer's league or whatever you want to call it. Farmer's league t-shirts will soon be available on PSG talks, Patreon page, um, sign up on our Patreon and go order them. Um, if you don't want to be called the farmer's league, you have to attract stars. PSG have done the job of attracting stars. Now it's league Gun's job to market those stars and to give them the best possible chance of success. And that doesn't mean that you just give them every call. That's not what that means. But league gun officials have been practicing football. So, and this is a term Neymar Sr. used, and I'll use it here. It's football socialism. If Neymar can beat you off the dribble and can just one-on-one rainbow flick you, nutmeg you, beat you with speed, beat you with skill. If Kylian Mbappe can just beat you with pace and good touches and power, it is not the official's job to even the playing field by allowing the lesser opponent more leeway in fouling and in disruption and in kicking at them, in kicking at them or grabbing them high and turning them. The rules have to be the rules. If that's a foul, when, if Niang, let's put Niang for an example. If Niang fouled a player from Angers like that, it's a straight red. There's no doubt. It's a straight red. But that referee, and I'm going to project here, but this is, I think, the, the Occam's razor principle here. That ref thought, if I expel Niang... This game's over, PSG's going to win, and it's not going to be competitive. And we want a competitive match. And if it's borderline, we're going to keep the guy in the game. I think that's what they thought. And I think that these referees also think that, hey, these guys can't stop Neymar the normal way, so we have to give them leeway to foul him. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is you want your best players playing. That's why in La Liga, they protected Ronaldo, they protect Messi, they protect Griezmann. That's why in the Premier League, they protect Mo Salah. Every time Mo Salah falls down, it's a foul. He can be breathed on and he falls down. He throws his arms in the air and it's a foul because they understand how to market. They understand that star players get star calls like the NFL, like in the NBA. This is what happens in all major sports leagues and if this league refuses to do that they're going to see players like Neymar and Mbappe leave earlier than they should because they don't want to get kicked and nobody calls anything and then what are you going to be left with a league that no one wants to go to because hey if I'm a star and I go to this league I'm just going to get my ass beat for 
you know, 38 games and no one's going to call anything and no one's going to do anything about it, they have to really examine themselves and fix the problem. That's all I'm going to say. Lee Gunn, LFP, fix the problem. Now, with that being said, PSG had a much better second half. They got three goals, uh, one by Di Maria, one by Cavani, one by Mbappe. Draxler played really well trying to fill in for Neymar. They played him more centrally in the second half. That really helped. They were pretty good defensively, except for Bernat, who had some (coughs) struggles early, but he was able to figure it out. The Strasbourg game was what it was. Strasbourg had no interest in actually playing a real game. PSG got their two goals and put it away. So what's next? PSG have three more games to prepare for Manchester um, United. And they have them in the span of about seven days or so. They have a game against Lyon on Sunday which will be a huge game at the Group Ama. Then on Wednesday, the nat- not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday, they have a game against um, a team called Villafranche Beaujolais, which is about the most French-sounding name for a football club you can possibly have. And that is a national side, so I'm expecting heavy rotation in that game. Like, they, they can't afford, with... Manchester United a week away to play a lot of people in that game. And quite frankly, I expect some rotation in that Bordeaux game that Saturday too. I just, I don't see them, they can't risk more injury. So I think Mbappe will sit in those games. I think Ferrati will sit in the Villafranche game. He'll try to get fit against Bordeaux, probably play a half. And then we go from there. I'm going to have a preview of Manchester probably next week. Along with coverage of the Lyon game, I'll see if I, who I can get involved in that. Um, make sure you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. PSG Talking should be recorded today, which is Sunday, and drop sometime Tuesday or Wednesday. Look out for that. As I said before, go to our Patreon page. Visit PSGTalk.com to get to that. And on the other side will be my interview my conversation, uh, our state of league on with a uh, friend of the show, Rich Allen. Again, I said it, Rich Allen is on a PSG talk show. I know, hell has frozen over. So um, enjoy that, and um, we'll see you on the other side. Well, hell has frozen over. It's Rich Allen uh, from a whole bunch of different things uh, related to French football. Rich, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, indeed. Um, before we get started, just introduce yourself, sort of how you got into following the French game. I know you're obviously British, so how you got into watching the French game, uh, how you developed your love for Stade Rennes, and um, anything else you kind of want to add, uh, plug-wise, what you're doing, what you're, um, who you're writing for, who you're podcasting for, all that good stuff. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, so my, I mean, my love of, of French football as with probably quite a few people, probably stemmed all the way back to 1998. Um, obviously, that, that World Cup, that amazing World Cup um, that, that many can remember so clearly. Um, I was actually holidaying in France, not not a million miles from Rennes, um, during 
uh, or just after um, that that World Cup success. Uh, that was in uh, July. I was in I was in France then of the the October of that year, and you could just tell the excitement that that uh, that tournament had generated. Um, and year on year, we used to go on holiday to that same part of France. And over time, I started to pick up, you know, the players, the teams. I started to look for results when I was over there in the paper. Um, and, and gradually, I decided, you know, it'd be quite nice to sort of latch onto a club, I suppose. And and with us going on holiday to to, to Brittany, you know, Ren Ren were the team. We were we were staying not far from Ren, so I started to to look out for them more and more. Um, and eventually, it, it it became something a bit more serious. Um, so probably from about 2004, 2005 onwards, sort of taking a real serious interest in Ren. That's only got more and more, and, and, and obviously Liga and, and in general has come with that. Um, and obviously then I made the move into writing about it, talking about it, really, and feeling that there was a, of the top five divisions, there was a real lack of, of coverage, I think, for for this this particular league, considering everything that it has it has brought to the the global game global game in terms of style of play, in terms of players that it produces, and the sort of history of the game um, as well. Um, so I started writing and, and podcasting for French Football Weekly. Um, that would have been back in about two thousand and thousand thirteen, I think that was. Um, which I still do to this day, um, and over the course of that period, you know, more and more publications have come in. Um, I'm now um, a writer and podcaster as well for Get French Football News, so sort of covering off the two leading English language league and focused uh, websites, um, and made appearances, uh, you know, on, on various other bits and pieces, including uh, Sirius XFM over in the states. Um, just love talking about French football. You know, it's I'm a real passionate believer that it's still viewed as a sort of lesser league compared to things like the Premier League, La Liga, you know, even Bundesliga and Serie A. Uh, I think French league still gets such a bad rep. So, you know, I'm a bit of a campaigner, I suppose, to mm. to give give French football and bring back a, a really good name for it and a bit of respect, I suppose. Yeah, we'll get into some of those topics that you kind of touched on there, but um, you're not necessarily an anomaly. There's a bunch of you guys on Twitter that I follow and interact with uh, over the last few years. You, uh, Muhammad Ali, follows uh, Marseille. Jeremy Smith follows Mets. And uh, Jonathan Johnson, obviously the PS- now the PSG um, reporter for ESPN. Um, what is it about the English con- and French connection? Because there's a bunch of you guys that follow English teams and French teams, will follow the French team and follow the English national team. Besides the proximity, is there just something about that connection that you can discuss? I think as a a Brit, I suppose, we've always sort of liked that plucky underdog status. I suppose there's an affinity to that, 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 as I said before, the French league is viewed, um, you know, a lot of people look down upon the French league. And so I sort of found that connection. Um, you know, I, I love the country. Um, you know, that that obviously is a huge factor as well. Um, you know, um, I, we go on holiday there, we visit there. I love the culture of the place. 
um, everything about France as a whole. And it's just nice then that I've managed to to attach myself to the football side of things as well. And I'd imagine that's you know that that's the case for for quite a few other people. Um, it's it's just it's just nice. You know, it it feels as though you know it's starting to grow and make some serious inroads. I think, and more and more people, I think, can recognise and identify. French football for what it should be recognised and identified for. Um, I still feel as though we're fighting a tough battle, um, but I think it's a battle that, that that we and everybody that you know every everybody that, that that sort of views and looks at French football from the outside in can uh, can feel as though we're sort of making real inroads to. Yeah, and when I, when I started following PSG like ten years ago, it was it was really hard over in the in the states here to watch Liga and like you really couldn't. So it's like you catch the odd game or two when the Champions League stuff was on, but it's like once B and Sports got the rights to it, and it's had its flaws over here in the states, absolutely. Um, I know you guys have it on, I think BT Sports, one of the yeah. pay channels, and they had a dispute about it at the beginning of August, and it's not always the easiest league to watch. It doesn't necessarily have the great uh, publicity through good, uh, I guess, good television clearance. But once I got the ability to watch a lot of it, like I genuinely believe that if you're going to follow Paris Saint-Germain, part of following Paris Saint-Germain is following the league they play in. And I think that it's important to have a respect for it. And the term always comes up, and uh, we've tried to co-opt it into a T-shirt, which you can purchase on our, uh, on our Patreon, um, the Farmer's League term. And... <laughs> I find it to be, and this is just me looking at it, I see it as, is there really any difference between Bordeaux right now and, let's say, um, Wat, you know, like a Watford or a Crystal Palace or a Brighton and Hove? Like, I... I'm not a. I'm just. I'm very um, flummoxed by the idea that you can just throw the farmers' league term, and say, "Oh, France is the fifth best league out of five major leagues in Europe." When I don't see much of a difference between league one and the Bundesliga at all. Like, really, aren't they basically the same league at this point? There's one team that's pretty much better than the other teams. Sometimes a team or two can challenge them, but it's not um, a ra- it's not a common occurrence. And in Italy, Juventus have won it for what the last eight nine years in a row or something like that. It's it's it just seems unfair at this point when there's so much evidence pointing to the fact that most European leagues are top heavy with one maybe two or three really good teams, and it just seems like Liga gets the gets pointed out and singled out for something that really is a an occurrence throughout European football. Uh, it does, it does. It's it, it, The Farmers League, it was a phrase, I think, probably 18 months ago, really, really grated on me. I now, I now find it quite funny because I think people bandy it around um, quite ignorantly. Um, I remember having a... Very brief um, exchange of tweets with um, with Sid Lowe, actually the uh, the La Liga journalist, um, and he um, he was actually he was battling with someone who was trying to describe La Liga as a farmers league, and he was just 
just pointing out that it's 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 sort of a, as a, as an insult. It's a load of nonsense, really. And and why can't people just you know you enjoy the Premier League, so enjoy the Premier League. You know, you don't need to go out on the offensive and start attacking the French league or the Spanish league or the German. It's you know, enjoy your football. You know, I think that's that's the key thing. And I now find it quite funny. And it's a little a little hobby of mine, sad little hobby, but a fun little hobby at the same <laughs> time. Is I like to find people who decide to. You know, you see people like you know Bleacher Report, for example. You know, these sort of big, you know, huge accounts. That are, you know, that eventually, you know, occasionally just put up a, a tweet or an infographic about, uh, sorry, about Lee Gunn, and you just look at the comments underneath, and you just pick out the, you know, the Farmers League, the people who with the, with the, uh, you know, the images of tractors and things like that. You click on their profile, and who do they support? You know, they support Chelsea. Who's their, who's their Twitter ident? Well, it's N'Golo Kante. It's Eden Hazard. And I just, I just, I just like the ignorance of that. Is that they generally probably don't make that connection of well, where did you get Aiden Hazard Hazard from? Where did N'Golo Kante start his career? And it's the same with so many clubs, not just in the Premier League. You know, you can pick out, you know, I've picked out Barcelona accounts who decide to have a pop at, at Liga, and you go on their account, and Usman Dembele is their header, or Samuel Umtiti. Uh, you know, when you go on Real Madrid accounts, it's carrying Benzema, for example, um, and it's it's endless, and it's just a bit of it's just a bit of fun ultimately. But it's it is a terminology that that I think people use now. It's become almost the the in thing, isn't it? Really, to now throw it around as a as an insult. But you know, I think nine times out of ten, there's there's no substance to it. It's it's some ignorant person that's really not thought about it that is probably expressing a huge amount of of um, um, of irony I suppose when you see then who they support and, and players who play for those teams that started out in France but it's a, it's a funny phrase um, that, that has become I think a lot more prevalent in the last 6-12 months um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that not only, I think more and more people now, because it's a phrase that a lot of people are, f- uh, are familiar with, Liga now isn't the only league that's getting bandied around that. It's it's probably very insecure fans of a Premier League team that will just throw it at any league. Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, they'll just use that phrase. So it's almost lost its impact now because so many people are using it um, that it's it's actually, in a sad way, it's quite funny. Yeah, and I currently I'm looking at in my in my room I have the kind of the French national team posters from this year's World Cup and pretty much every one of those players except for Antoine Griezmann had its had their time in French football at some point and if you want to consider Farmers League the fact that Ligue 1 probably grows and nurtures the best footballers in the world right now <laughs> That's probably where you could say, all right, the Farmers League meant, you know, you can take that almost as a, you almost turn that around and say, like, look, where are the best players coming from right now? They're coming from France. And whether they be French or not French, they're coming through the French League and going out to other places, going to La Liga, going to the Premier League, and becoming the best players in those leagues as well. So... It, it, it the problem for Liga and really is not the quality of player because they've developed the best as I just said the best players in Europe recently. 
I think the issue is if we're gonna make a an issue of it is the teams, and it's a league that produces great players, but right now isn't necessarily producing great teams. And I just kind of want your take on this year's quality in league gun compared to let's say last year's or the year before, and maybe even since the Qatari PSG uh, takeover in 2011. And maybe even beyond that, depending on where you want to take it. But just sort of what do you feel like the quality of this league is right now compared to where it has been? Um, it's certainly it's certainly moved on. I think certainly the quality has has improved year on year. Now, how steep that that sort of curve of progress curve of progression has been, there's perhaps a feeling it's starting to ever so slightly moved towards a bit of a plateau it all comes down to I think at the end of the day is money mm. um, you know for, for a huge period of time um, French Football Federation um, weren't particularly interested in marketing of French football not a huge amount of money in the game in France um, sort of just got by on, on the you know the clubs having these you know the excellent infrastructure in place to, to generate the uh, the quality players that were produced. We obviously then had in the, the early nineties with the with the introduction of, of the Premier League and Sky putting their money into that and that, you know growing to an ex, you know extraordinary huge value in the space of, you know, however long it's been since ninety two. Um, you know, La Liga the same Bundesliga Serie A obviously had a, a huge heyday in the 90s the Bundesliga has been fairly steady throughout that period of time they all latched on in some way or another to marketing to expanding their their global presence and of course with that money came into those divisions into those countries and of course allowed for you know huge rises in salaries huge rises in transfer fees um, and everything that came about it and France was of, of those five leagues France was very much I think the last one to latch on to that and it's probably obviously we had we had um, you know QSI coming in with PSG we've now as a you know sort of three or four years later there is now this project to grow the international footprint of of Ligue 1 you know there's projects ongoing to to make it a more you know make their presence globally a lot more significant and again with that then we are now starting to see bigger television rights deals for example bigger sponsorship deals coming into the game which is all of a sudden allowing teams in the last few years to to push for those higher transfer fees league earn traditionally were woeful league earn clubs were woeful at putting a you know the correct market value on their players and so many times quality players left for a fraction of the price that they should have gone for look at aiden hazard for example you know he was he joined psg off the back of of winning the double with lille um, you know league earn player of the year fantastic player and he joined you know Chelsea and a few few years ago now, but still at the time it felt Lille have really undersold and undervalued Hazard. Um, you know they could have they could have quite easily got another five, ten, maybe even fifteen million on top of that. Um, actually kicking themselves onto the player that he's ultimately become, but he was still a star at that point in time. He was not a nobody. I think we need to remember. 
So I think what we have seen is clubs nowadays are better, I think, at valuing their players. That might be a case of just they're, they're willing to exploit the likes of the Premier League clubs who are coming in with huge bucks to buy these players. It might be that as well. Um, but they have struggled to value their players um, uh, in, the, in the past. We're starting to see that get rectified. Um, but I think what also doesn't help French football is it is almost a victim of its own success. They have these fantastic academies. You know, you look across France, um, and nearly you know, you know nearly every region in France has at least one club who really stands out as having amazing facilities. You, you only have to look at the results. Um, the uh, the football observatory team in Switzerland, who are a, a great statistics team, all, you know, annually put together a list of players who play in the top five leagues and which league they were developed in. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and league and clubs nearly always appear at the top of that. You know, your likes of Lyon, your likes of Nantes, your likes of PSG, um, Rennes, Monaco. Bordeaux, Marseille, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but it became a victim of that success because the richer clubs from overseas could come in and snap snap up their players. Now, we're still seeing that, and I actually think in the last 18 months, two years, maybe even pushing three years, there has been a real, real increase in the number of players leaving Liga, And that is purely a money thing. Um, I would say it's not the entire thing, but significantly anyway, it's a money thing. You know, if you're a young player and a club can come along and say, you know what, I'm going to quadruple your wages. The club that you've you trained with, we're going to pay them a you know 30 million euro fee. Of course, the transfer is going to go through. Um, but I think that's probably that that's probably the one the one issue I've got with Liga is that those young players do find themselves leaving a lot quicker, um, which is great in one way, but it also means that we don't get to see them fully develop. We look at, let's, let's use Monaco probably as an example. That team that, what, two, two years ago, won league game. If that had stayed together and Monaco were able to, um, I've no doubt that they would, you know, they would be, they would have challenged PSG again the following season, and would be challenging PSG again this season. Um, but financial restrictions didn't allow that. Obviously, the big clubs came in, and huge sums were involved in seeing those players depart. So I think where we are now in terms of the quality is we're on the cusp. I think um, we are we are on the cusp of, of hopefully coming to the end of that sort of free-for-all snapping up players from league earn and hopefully in the next couple of seasons or so we're going to start to see the benefits of these projects to increase the global presence of the game and um, the television rights deals hopefully making you know clubs more financially you know, financially secure meaning they're not having to do these sort of fire sales for players in addition I suppose to foreign investment coming in you know obviously QSI led the way, but we've now obviously got we've got Russian money in at Monaco. Uh, we've got you know American owners at, at um, Marseille and Bordeaux now. Uh, we've got Chinese and American money in at Nice. There are more and more clubs attracting that. So I think all of that together means hopefully, you know, this is the end, this is coming towards the end of that phase and hopefully the start of a new exciting phase. Yeah, and I I have always wanted to see this league 
go past some of its um, some of its past uh, predilection for uh, the way that things were done. And I hope that there's this new television deal, which got ratified, I think, like last year, that's over a billion dollars. It's a good, you know, it's it's a good start because you have to grow the revenue of the league and grow it in a way where you can spread that money out to some of these other clubs because as PSG have kind of learned over the last couple of years, even since the beginning, you can have a billion dollars behind you, but when your actual you know organization doesn't bring in the revenue that's necessary to sort of make the club sustainable on its own without sort of injecting the money into it, the sort of financial restrictions that that uh, UEFA has put on clubs it sort of hurts that way. Like if you're if you're Liverpool, you make enough money where you really don't have to invest all that much money into the club since you pretty much have a good revenue stream that's consistent naturally. Same with the Barcelona, same with the Real Madrid, and the other clubs are able to hopefully sustain themselves on the on their attendance and on their uh, on the revenue they get from the leagues, get from the television deals, et cetera, et cetera. It's a whole big business. But do you do you see and you say that you're hoping that we're reaching the end of that? Do you think that there is a mentality in League One that has to change, even with a new injection of money, or would the injection of money sort of free up these? These people that own these sort of smaller French clubs in Ligue 1, let's say a Nantes or a Rennes or a um, even a Strasbourg, which has a, loads of potential for where it is in the country and the fan base that it has. Do you think that that money will free those teams up or will it just sort of or are they just naturally inclined to do it the way that they've always done it? Um, I think you're right to touch on the mentality. I think this almost an inferiority complex I think with a lot of a lot of clubs um, in France and it's 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 not without its you know with not without its uh, its groundings you know it's not not totally unmerited um, but I think what this money will do is is we may not see an absolute immediate impact um, you know I think you have to look at look at say the Premier League it was you know although we're it, probably in the last sort of ten years, it has taken a huge, a much larger step forward. Those sort of first ten years or so, it did feel as though the the sort of change was quite quite gradual. The definite, you know, a definite change, but a quite a gradual change. And I think we'll probably see that in France. The money coming in won't change people overnight and change how they operate their clubs, how they, you know, how they view themselves in the in the sort of um, grand scheme of things. But it will ever so slightly start to change. And so what we may end up seeing is sort of 10, 15, maybe even 20 years down the line, we're at a point actually that is almost unrecognisable to where we are now and certainly unrecognisable to where we were 15 years ago um, with, with, with these owners who... Uh, you know, we almost, it, it, it's, it's sad to say because it does move you away from those old sort of traditional times, but put these certainly a lot more savvy, a lot more modern um, modern uh, viewing, uh, way of viewing things in charge of these clubs. And what we, what we can only hope for is that, you know, we, what, what has happened, you know, what has happened, say, in, in England, although 
last couple of seasons that maybe had changed, where it affected the quality of the youth system. We only hope that that is the one thing that really doesn't change in France. Mm. You know, that's the one thing that certainly stayed consistent over all, you know, over all these years is the quality of of the, the youth setups, the youth systems, the academies that these clubs and it really must be impressed upon any any owners, any new owners um, that, that 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 is integral to the success of any individual team. Um, and that we, we only hope that they don't become we want the money to help them grow. That's all that's what we want. But we don't want the money to become the sole reason that they are operating, the sole reason that those clubs are existing. We we don't want to get to that point. So it's it's finding that balance. So it's gonna be a very interesting period, I think, coming up once that money now starts to come in and how these clubs change, who changes quickly, who doesn't. Um it, yeah, it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see how that how that changes. Uh, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit to talk about the specific teams, and um, we'll go into our sort of uh, crisis part of the podcast. We have two teams right now in French football that I think you can arguably say are in crisis mode, and those would be uh, AS Monaco and Olympique Marseille. We'll start with Monaco, who, as you said, two years ago beat PSG to the title. Uh, went somewhere where PSG have been trying to get to for the last six years, which is the semifinals of a Champions League. And they did it with mostly, they did it with a lot of youth players, but they also did it with really savvy veterans. They did it with guys like Radamel Falcao and Camille Glick and Jemerson and Jao Moutinho. They had a balance of young, explosive, Kylian Mbappe, uh, Benjamin Mendy-type players, and experienced veterans who'd played in big games, who'd been in big matches, who could sort of guide them. And the last two years, I have been critical of exactly how Monaco have gone about the sort of rebuilding, if you want to call it that. I, I would sort of call it more of a dismantling of what they had. And I feel like maybe I was a little ahead of the curve on this because I think a lot of people, especially in the French sort of French English uh, soccer media, sort of saw, okay, this is clearly what they have to do. They have to take advantage of the value of these players and sell them for high figures and replenish and rebuild the squad. But they never sort of were able, I think, to strike that balance between having a team with experiencing youth and their veterans got really old really fast camel glicks clearly not the same player he was jemerson's completely not the same player last year they were playing andrea raggi in in like at like left back and stuff they falcao's not the same guy and they never really brought in the experience and they just kept bringing in these young guys and these young guys just have not done the same have not been able to keep up that same um that same quality and now they find themselves in a situation where they fire their coach or let him go depending on who you ask they hire Thierry Henry who was in the process of driving them into the ditch and they bring back the guy that they just released three months ago Rich just make sense of this for me is that it, it, it how did this team go in two years from 
where they were to where they are now? Um, victims, probably victims of their own success. So Monaco's success was built on an excellent scouting network that was able to identify the really talented young players, not only in France, but also around around Europe and even further afield as well. Now, they were able to identify you know, young players, sort of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, who they felt, yeah, you've got, the, you've got the potential. And they were able to act fast with fire, sort of monetary firepower that was certainly far superior than uh, pretty much everybody else in France to snap them up, and certainly when it came to, to bringing in players um, from within France. Um, so they were able to, you know, a club like Caen was in no huge position to really turn down a €4 million Euro offer for a player like Thomas Lamar. Um, and so that was the success that, that Monaco were built upon. And, of course, you know, once, once, they, ret- once they returned to, to Liga, and they obviously had that summer where they, they spent an absolute fortune on the likes of Moutinho, Falcao, James Rodriguez. Um, but quickly for... for you know, circumstances perhaps beyond their control, namely a very expensive divorce for their president and financial fair play rules coming in. Uh, they had to change that policy, and it became this recruit, you know, recruit young, train up, um, and then sell for a very high price. And that worked. You know, that did work. We we we, you know, we saw we saw the results of that. Was that they eventually then got to that squad that played such fantastic football um, and got them the league and title. Um, the problem they then faced were probably two key problems they faced. One was everybody else realised, you know what, this this um, you know this um, plan and objective and, and style that Monaco have, we want a bit of that. So other clubs started to you know go after the same kind of young players that Monaco were going after, which, as we saw then, this you know the last twelve months has forced Monaco. Because they can't necessarily compete with those bigger clubs, has forced Monaco to come you know, after even younger players. You know, we look at the likes of um, uh, who do we look at? We look at Pellegri, for example. We look at um, uh, William Goebbels. We look at uh, Sofiane Diop. We look at Wilson Isidore. All players who are 16, 17 year olds, and. They're just too raw to be thrown into a team like this. Um, so it's that you know their success sparked interest from other clubs, which has forced Monaco into a change in style. The other problem, of course, was they lost their sporting director, Luis Campos, um, was a huge part of of you know helping bring those kind of players in. He departed um, and moved uh, moved to Lille, and they brought Michael Emanalo in, who was the um, who was who's previously in a similar role at Chelsea, and Emanalo has, has recently fired too. <laughs> exactly, yeah, he has not been successful, and him and he and Jardine did not get on, and that's effectively one of the criteria that Jardine has for returning this time is that that you know the key problem that we've had with Monaco is the transfer policy has been too confused, too poorly thought out, and you know it's no surprise the squad's in the condition it's in. So Emanalo has, has gone as well as Henri. You know, Jardim has come in. He's bringing his old backroom staff in. Um, there's very much a feel that this time Jardim is going to have you know, more of a more of a say in things. Um, and you know, it felt 
it felt that um, that Rabelovlev and Vasilyev, the, the the president and vice president of, of Monaco, were starting to take control of things when really they didn't need to. Um, you know, Luis Campos and Jardine were the two successes. You know, they were the coach, they were the sporting director. Leave them to get on with it. Um, so I think there's a there is a sense that. Um, you know, Monaco are in crisis, as, as you pointed out at the start of this segment. There's no, no doubt about that. Um, I think the key, well, one of the key aspects that perhaps gets slightly forgotten with Monaco, everybody does focus on the sales, is their senior players. You know, these veterans have just not performed. You know, Falcao has had you know, a bit of injury issues, but I think he's looked far from his best. You know, you have Glick who has at times this season looked woeful. Sidibe has had bigger injury problems as well, but when he's played, he's looked pretty terrible. You know, these are league and title-winning players. These are experienced players. They should be performing at a higher level. There's no reason why they're not. Um, so it's, it's you know, Monaco's, Monaco's failures this season are really just a culmination of... Um, you know their transfer successes coming back to bite them. Senior players not performing, um, and a transfer policy and players that they did bring in were just not up to scratch or just didn't develop how they should have how they should have developed. Um, so it's going to be I'm going to be very intrigued to see you know what impact Jardine can have now. Um, it, it it does leave the club looking a little foolish. Um, you know they paid. Pay Jardim, I think, eight million severance pay. Um, he's been away for three months. They've now brought him back. They're having to pay Henri. I think the rumours are between ten and twelve million euros. <laughs> you know, this is this is money that shouldn't have to have been. They shouldn't have spent that money. That should have been going into, you know, proper sound player recruitment. Um, I think the players they brought in this, you know, this this transfer window currently. I think they are they are certainly the right kind of players. Um, I think you look at Balo Torre, for example, who's looked really good um, at left back for Lille, uh, first part of this season. That's that's the kind of player that the Monaco of four or five years ago were buying, um, and that's that's a solid bit. That's a solid bit of investment. They brought Naldo in, hugely experienced centre back. Um, you know, you hope that he can he can provide a little bit of steel at the back. Uh, and then obviously you've got Fabregas, and their midfield has been a serious issue. You know, Golovan has not been the player that, that many thought he was going to be. Tielemans has really struggled at times, although slight hints every now and again you feel, yeah, he is a good player, but has struggled to, to perform on a regular basis. Uh, and they just need that kind of creativity. Maybe Fabregas, yeah. you know, he's only 31 still. Yeah. Maybe Fabregas is that kind of player, so it's going to be a it's going to be a very nervy second half of the season for Monaco. Um, but you know, I'm glad to see Jardine back. Um, you know, I, I loved him as a, as a as a coach. I think what he did with Monaco was fantastic. I thought that Monaco title winning team were were playing at, at one point probably some of the best football in Europe. Um, so you know, if he can come back and rescue them. Um, and then have a summer of, of you know his kind of recruitment, then maybe you know Monaco can get back on track. Well, and I'll say a couple things on that. I'd say for Monaco, better to look foolish than to get relegated into League Deux. So. Yes. Um, but also, like the Golovin is a perfect example of this. That was such a not Monaco like transfer in that the guy did have like 
he was, you know, he was playing in the Russian league. He had three good World Cup games against Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, all the all the giants of world football. He was having these great games against, apparently, and he gets this decently large transfer fee, and the guy's practically unusable. And I, I certainly do, in a certain way, feel bad for Thierry Henry. I do think he underestimated um, the level of uh, care and sort of attention this job was going to require of him. But at the same time, I think he's shown a level of arrogance that sort of tempers my uh, me feeling bad for him. So do you, I, was this always going to fail, Henri at Monaco? Was there a, is there a universe where you have the exact same sort of situation in place where he comes in and he turns this thing around? It, it was all romanticism, I think, wasn't it, with Henri? Yeah. It was, it was him coming back to his 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 uh, club that he really started his career at. Um, you know, it was a club that that Wenger you know, made his name at. Um, it was it was all a bit too romantic, I think, and uh, and perhaps sort of, um, you know, they were perhaps looking back and 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 hoping that those kind of memories and that kind of story could come true, but. You know, it, it was the wrong manager at the wrong club at the wrong time. Um, you know, if, if Monaco were coming off the back of, you know, finishing third, they'd had a quite, you know, a very, very strong um, transfer window in the summer. They actually managed to keep hold of some of their key players. Then maybe you could have seen a little bit of sense in that. But the fact that it was sort of a case that, that the Jardim was sort of engineered out, although I, I do believe it was mutual, um, because of the position the club was in, I think, in all honesty, hiring someone like Henri at that point in time, yes, it was a you know it w it could have been a nice story, but ultimately, I think you look back on it, you think it was needlessly reckless. You know there were experienced um, coaches out there that they could have brought in, put just put on a short term contract to the end of the season to to rescue the club, stabilise the club, and then you know what? Then they could have looked at, to brought an Henri in in the summer um, but yeah I, I, I never you never really anticipated that this would have worked out you ever I think everybody or certainly a lot of people at the time felt that this was a, a needless gamble for, for Monaco to take and sadly for Henri sadly for Monaco it, it, it's sort of come true and we'll, we'll go from a team that has fired two coaches uh, in the last year to a team that apparently financially cannot fire the coach um, Olympic Marseille um they uh, yesterday just lost 2-0 to Lille in Mario Balotelli's grand debut. He gets a, uh, he gets a uh, consolation goal, and that was his first goal of the season, by the way. Um, Marseille, um, I think we can both agree that we don't like Marseille. I think it's one of, our, one of the things we have in common. Um, but what's the plan? Like, I, I, and as a... You know, I try to be as objective as possible here, being a, a Paris Saint-Germain fan. But seriously, though, what is the plan? You have Frank Court coming in, talking about Champions Projects, and they, in the summer, fail to basically do the simple things that they should have done, which is sign a striker and sign another defensive back. They went into the season with Adil Rami and... 
uh, Rolando as their center backs, and they did not upgrade. They've had to play Luis Gustavo at center back. They've had to play uh, 18-year-old Bubakar Kamara at center back. At striker, they brought in they brought in Valer Germain two years ago, and he's just not he's not a you know he's not at that quality. If they want to be at a certain quality, wherever they think they are quality wise, he ain't at that quality. And Kostas Mitroglou has had his moments, but he's not at that quality. And they did not um, they did not get get the necessary pieces that they needed to sort of. Boy, bolster a team that last year kind of got a little bit on a hot streak. Florian Tovan played well above where he's pretty much ever played in his entire career, and he's kind of brought that over to this season. But I, I'm, I'm confused as to you have an ownership group coming in and saying that they want to at least sort of try to even the playing field of the Paris Saint-Germain. They want to aim for the Champions League, but then they're acting like a club that is really not aiming for any of that. They're just sort of aiming for being a team, another league gun team. And quite frankly, Marseille should not just be another league gun team. Yeah, I think, uh, I think probably to start that off, it's, it's not that I, I dislike Marseille. I'm frustrated with Marseille. I want to see Marseille back at their best. I want to see, you know, Marseille challenging PSG. I, I want to, I want to see that. It frustrates me that a club that has got so much going for it can't get their act together. Um, because it's a club that's really summed up is that they, they have no seemingly clear transfer policy. Considering they've got someone like Zubizarreta at the club, who is an experienced football man, um, you know, Rudy Garcia, experienced football man, their transfer policy is absolutely diabolical. Um, you know, we have all identified, and I would hope that Marseille fans would agree with me, that they have needed four or five players in key areas to take this team to the next level. Um, you know, they've needed quality fullbacks. They've needed at least one new centre-back. They've needed probably two, um, you know, two midfielders, I would say, perhaps one of an attacking nature, one of a defensive nature, and they've needed at least one striker. And transfer window after transfer window, they have made acquisitions that just seem to be a bit of a waste of money. You know, you go back to go back to the summer. You know, they signed Coletta Carr, they signed um, uh, Radonjic. Um, neither have particularly played at all. Kevin I think Strutman. Kevin Ke- Ke- Kevin Strootman is probably the one slight success story. You know, I don't think he's been fantastic, but at least he has played. At least he has, you know, at times he's he's lo- he's looking like he's putting effort in. Um, but you know, th- the the transfer the transfer policy is a mess at that club. It really, really is. You know, for for the new owner to have come in and to have taught. I mean, we all joke about this champions project now, but that's where he wants to take this club, and that's where it should be. You know, let's not forget how big of a club Marseille are. They are huge. Um, they need to be back there. That's where they belong. Um, so to have talked about that Champions Project, that's great. You've got to back it up then. 
and they haven't been able to back it up in the transfer window because that squad you look at that squad on paper and where it is in the league is pretty much where it should be in the league we shouldn't actually be surprised we shouldn't be saying oh this team's underperforming actually this team's probably performing as it should be performing um because you know, ultimately, the squad as a whole is not a top three squad. Um, you know, again, I, w- I would hope there are some Marseille fans, maybe fewer than before, but some Marseille fans that could agree with that. Um, because it isn't. You know, you go through that squad and you think, yeah, who who is that quality player? You know, Steve Mandanda, hugely fantastic servant for the club. This season, it's clear that he's 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 he's. Um, his talents are decreasing at a dramatic level. You look at the defence, you know, it comes to something where they've had to, you know, their most successful defender probably has been Bounassar at right back, who isn't a right back. <laughs> they've had to play him at right back because they've got no other options. Because that defence, you know, the defence is a mess. Jordan Amavi at one point was touted as the future left back of France. Um, you know, he moved from Nice to, to England to, to, to Aston Villa, obviously had a horrible, horrible injury there, come back to Marseille, and he has just failed to kick on to a really disappointing level. Um, you look in the midfield, Luis Gustavo, fantastic midfielder. I think the, his, his, his first season, probably second season as well, were really up there with some of the top, top performances we have seen um, of recent times. But because they haven't recruited properly in defence this season and for large parts of last season, they've had to play him at centre-back. And he is not even half the player he is when he's forced to play at centre-back. It's so obvious that he's not a centre-back. But because they don't seem to trust the likes of Abdenor, they don't seem to trust the likes of of Rami all the time, of of Rolando all the time. You know, you feel sorry for Bubakar Kamara because he is, you know, he's a talented prospect, but he's having to play with some, you know, really underperforming senior players. You, you you fear as to what he's actually learning. But Luis Gustavo has been forced to play out of position because of the lack of of quality signings. Morgan Sanson, I think he has been a good signing. Um, I think we do need to see more from him. I think this season he has stepped it up a little bit. Um, we've got Tovan. Yep, last season. Stellar season. Best season of his career. But my goodness, did he have to bail out that Marseille team way too many times. And that's been, that's been the case this season. And you just wonder if his red card in the, in the match against... Um, the match against Lille Friday night for a really stupid kick out was just sheer frustration at the position he's in. I think there was a part of him that probably saw that he was hoping for a bit of a move, I think, last summer and maybe even this winter. And that's not going to happen. And you just wonder, has all the frustrations that you know, he put in that kind of performance last season... The club haven't then backed him up by signing quality players, haven't allowed him to leave to, to, to pastures new. You just wonder if the frustration's building with him. Dimitri Payet, one of the most frustrating players. Um, you know, We saw at the second half of last season there weren't many players better than him in France. Um, many do wonder, is it just because there was a, a World Cup coming and was he doing it for... for um, you know, for the for the possible pick in the uh, the French World Cup squad, um, this this season he's been anonymous. 
absolutely anonymous too many times. Um, he's been given the captaincy, not performing. There were some very interesting quotes, actually, from his former captain when they were at Lille together, Rio Mavuba, as to he's not impressed with Pius at all. He's not showing any kind of leadership. Um, you know, Garcia trusted him with the captaincy. He's not performed. Has forced Garcia to put him on the bench. Pius just sat there and sulked. Um, he, yeah, I think he went off injured. I think was it? I can't remember if it was. I can't remember which game it was recently. He's gone off injured. I think it was the game against Khan actually. Um, and you just wonder where's the where's where does Garcia get the um, to make the decision to bring him back in because his performances just don't warrant it. Um, but he'll have to come back in because they've just got so little personnel. And on his day, we know he can be fantastic. So something has to change there. And then up front, yeah, you've got misfiring Valère Germain, misfiring Mitroglou. Um, you know, who knows what you're going to get from the likes of NG and Acampos. Um, they brought in Mario Balotelli. Um, you can't argue with one goal, one assist, uh, one game, one goal, sorry. Um, but you just feel that though he, he could sum up Marseille in one player. You know, so much potential, so much talent there. But you just feel as though there's something there that's going to stop him from performing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think come come the come the close of the season, come the summer, I think Marseille have to wherever they finish, they, even if they do finish in the top three, they have to have a really good look at that squad and think actually, if we're going to progress, if we're going to get anywhere close to achieving something to be labelled a champions project, that recruitment has to improve that squad has to improve because at the moment 6th place 7th place that's probably about right for this Marseille squad and um, I would say too that I I looked at that team about a year and a half ago when they played PSG in the Velodrome that was the 2-2 draw uh, where Neymar got sent off for the for the uh, double yellow that game Marseille we're playing with so much effort and intensity that you knew that PSG had the better players, but you 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 felt like Marseille wanted that game more. They almost won it. And last year, that my whole anytime I watched Marseille, it's which Marseille is going to show up. What effort are they going to give on any particular day? And they're not talented enough to, you know sleepwalk through a league and win, you know, and just pick up victories in games where they're not giving their 100%. And this year is sort of borne that out. I don't think that Marseille team last year was as good as their record said they were. I think they played really hard. I think they got some breaks here and there. And I think that they got some uh, exceptional performances from a couple of key players like Gustavo and uh, Tovan. And I think they were tricked into thinking that they were better than they were, and they weren't. Ur- they didn't have that urgency to fill those roster spots, and it's been going on for a while now. But it seemed like Rudy Garcia had at least stabilized the club after a few really, really bad years. But now you're like back to the really, really bad stuff. And the the whole rumor is that if they were to fire. Uh, Rudy Garcia, they'd have to pay him like a $10, $15 million buyout fee. And I'm not sure they exactly have the the financial capital to do that. 
So it feels like Marseille at this point in the year is just sort of stuck where they are. Like, I don't see anything, like, changing for them. I don't see a spark coming. I don't think Balotelli's exactly the right chemistry. I mean, he's a very, you're right, he's a very Marseille-like player in that in certain regards. But, you know, how long is he going to stay there until he gets frustrated about stuff and, you know... But I, I, as a PSG fan, I want Marseille to be good. I want there to be, a, like, an actual rivalry. Like, France needs that classic to be something, not just a game where PSG wins every year or doesn't lose. And, like, you get what I mean. Like, it, it, yeah, this, yeah. this league needs marquee matches, and they need marquee teams. And while Marseille is not holding their end of the bargain up, uh, Olympic Lyonnais is kind of holding that end right now. I mean, Lille are in second place, but I would say if you asked most people, Lyon is probably, talent-wise, the second-best team in France. And they showed over two games against Manchester City, they can, they can on their day, challenge the Premier League champions and beat them. Something that not a lot of Premier League teams can actually do. Leon went in there to the uh, to the Etihad Mausoleum and beat them that uh, that first game, and then they drew it at uh, the Groupama. And right now, I would say if as good as Lille are playing, we could talk a little bit about them. But Leon should be the second place team in this league. They have the quality, they have the talent, they have depth in multiple positions. They're good up front. They're good in back. They're good in the middle. They have one of the better goalkeepers in France. Bruno Genesio might leave a little bit to be desired, but he's not a total disaster as a coach. Like, is Monica, sorry, is Lyon overperforming, underperforming? Are they about where they are? Do you expect more from them, or are you sort of satisfied with what they've been able to do this year? Um, I'd like to see a little more from them, I think. Um, I think they're not still quite at that stage where you know what kind of performance you're going to get from them. Uh, and I think with the talent that they've got within their squad, we should be going into games feeling, you know what, yeah, Leon are going to come out of this with the win. I don't think we're quite at that stage yet. Um, I think as a squad, yes, it's very good. Um, I still think it's perhaps a squad that may be just dawdles a little bit too much and sort of as you, as you said before sort of sleepwalks almost uh, during games you know they've got they've got undoubted talent um, you know from front to back uh, you know you look up front they've got players like uh, Memphis Depay they've got Nabil Fekir um, they've got Bertrand Traore they've got uh, Hussam Awar uh, midfield then they've got Ndombele um, you know no doubting the talent those players have got, but for some reason, what Lyon haven't been able to get from them this season, um, and certainly aspects of last season as well, but this season, is all of those players playing at their best for a consistent period of time. Um, it seems as though they're having to rely on just one of those players to step up per game, whereas really, that should be as a unit, that should be as a team. Um I've been a bit of a defender of Genesio of late. I feel as though he does get way too much stick than he perhaps deserves. Uh, I think some of his players 
have to bear responsibility for performances on the pitch, and I think they do seem to get off um, get off quite freely from 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 criticism, and I think it all pretty much all gets um, thrown at thrown at Genesio. So I do feel as though you look at back at what he's actually done with this team. You know, he's brought them Champions League football. He's brought them a pretty consistent top three position. He's brought them a Europa League semi-final. Um, all the time having, you know, having to see his best players leave the club. You know, I think if, if you'd asked anybody to manage a team where in, you know, successive seasons you're going to lose them, Titi, Tolisso and Lacazette, and just how important they were in terms of defence, in terms of the, the creativity and drive in midfield and then the sheer natural goal-scoring ability. To lose those three players in, in the space of 12 months was a very tough task, I think, for any coach. So I think Genesio perhaps doesn't get the credit he, deserve, he deserves. That's not to say he shouldn't face criticism because these players not performing regularly, an element of that has to go, has to fall on his shoulders. You know, he, he shouldn't be free from criticism. But I think there needs to be a a, uh, a greater spread, I think, of criticism uh, around that structure. You know, and, and even all the way up to, to Jean-Michel Olas at the very top. Um, you know, the, the fact that Lyon... I'm not saying they should be, you know, pushing PSG season after season and making it, you know, this amazingly close title because, you know, they're just not going to be able to compete at that level. But certainly, you look at that squad compared to others in the division and, you know, they should be making second place theirs relatively comfortably. So I think that's the one criticism you've got at Lyon is that they aren't at that, that position yet where they can string together a run of sort of 10, 11 consecutive wins that really distinguish themselves from the rest of the pack apart from PSG. Do they have the core group of players that if they brought them back next year and added a couple of other pieces in, do they have that core that Monaco had where they could challenge Paris Saint-Germain or is the core that they have currently not going to be good enough no I think I think that core is good enough I think I think if they could recruit um, and bring in three or four more players of a similar caliber then they've definitely got the potential to push PSG a lot closer than than, than teams have done in in recent times, Monaco with being the exception of that with that uh, title winning season. I think my problem or the issue with that is, is that that core probably isn't going to stay together. You know, Olas is a very savvy businessman. If somebody's going to come in and offer him eighty million euros for Ndombele, he will sell Ndombele for eighty million euros, with with not a thought about. You know, let's look at, at building a squad to actually challenge for the title, challenge for something. Um, so, if you know, in a hypothetical world, yes, they could keep that squad that they've got at the minute together, add three or four, you know, similar quality players to it. Then I, I firmly believe there's 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 enough there to certainly push PSG a lot further than they've perhaps been stretched for for the majority of the last seven seasons. Hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that before, in that game that they played this year, it was pretty even until Fakir, well, Fakir obviously getting hurt early, and then the two red cards sort of 
canceled the game out a bit. So it wasn't a very good test. I'm curious to see that game in about a week where they go to the where PSG go to the Group Alma to play them. I, I think that's going to be a really tough game for PSG to win. And for a team that has not lost in the league yet, it's probably the best chance, you know, best best sort of statistical probability chance for them to lose. So that might be your league on game of the year um, coming up really uh, shortly. Um, we'll go through some other teams and we'll do it in sort of more rapid fire fashion. But um yeah, let's go through that now. Um, how is Lille second right now? What have they done to get themselves to second place? Uh, in short, they've got a very, very nice settled squad. Uh, they are coached by a very, very experienced uh, league on uh, coach and Christophe Galtier, and they have a, a front three and and well, mainly one player, but certainly a front three that are working arguably as well as as any front three in in dare I say Europe at the moment um, we've got we've got Jonathan Bamber Jonathan Ikone and then perhaps the star of the show and perhaps perhaps star of the season so far Nicola Pepe um, the three of those are at the moment just an absolute dream to watch um, the relationship that the three of them have the understanding on the pitch that where, you know where, where where each of them are the movement off the ball movement with the ball um, just the natural sort of finishing instincts certainly Pepe has, has really shown this season um, that's been the core um, they've got a you know very solid midfield they've had a defense that's impressed um, so much so obviously as we, we talked about earlier that Monaco snapped up the, the left back in in Balotore. Um but they've just got a very nice squad at the minute. I think their only downfall, perhaps, could be if injuries come. I don't necessarily think they've got the depth to survive um, uh, an injury crisis. Um, you know, if, if in worst case scenario for them, if Pepe was to go down for a you know a month or so, that that could really put pay to any chances of a top three finish. Um, but yeah, it's just a really nice squad at the minute. Uh, it really couldn't have gone any worse than last season um, for them. So I think all credit to to players on the pitch, um, to to Galtier and to the board ultimately because the, the the transfers that they made the previous summer when they started under Bielsa were just you know left you scratching your head as to what's actually the strategy of this club. This summer it was a much more focused, much more reasoned, much more clear transfer strategy, and you know it's paid dividends. Um, so it's uh, it's refreshing to see, um, and uh, you know long may it continue. And uh, let's go to your team. Let's go to Ren. Um, currently sitting in ninth. I like the squad that they have. Like I, I look at their players, and that anytime I watch them, they look like they should be explosive. You've got one of the, uh, I well two years ago Ismail Assar was being looked at by Barcelona so clearly a star player that you can sort of build a team around at the moment or somebody that you would think might be a star player that you could build the team around. Um, they brought in Ben Arfa who's from what I've seen has been fine for them. He's been a good creative force. Um, should they be ninth right now? Because. I, I don't know. They've gotten better under um, – they brought in – you can tell me because I, 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 my mind's blanking right now. But they brought in a coach midway through the year this year, and he sort of turned them around actually to a substantial degree. And right now they're 
moving up, but should they be better right now? Because even this happened last year. They started poorly last year, and they had to salvage it, and they ended up getting into the Europa League, which they're currently now in the round of 32. So where are they right now, Bren? Yeah, I would say that on the scale of of performance-wise, they are more towards the slightly underperforming. Although, as as you say, it's it's improving. They started the season under Sabri Lamouchi, um, who who took them to fifth, brought European football back to the club for the first time in um, about nine nine or so seasons, I think it was, um, and. You know, there was expectations and, and, and optimism that you know things would kick on from that. They then had a pretty dismal start to the season, uh, resulted in Lamouchi's sacking. They then promoted uh, Julien Stéphane, who was the uh, academy coach and reserve team coach, uh, very well respected. In fact, Henri was desperate to bring in uh, Stéphane as his number two at Monaco, um, but he was he was conveniently um, then appointed Ren manager. Um, and yeah, he got an instant reaction from the players. Um, they went undefeated um, in his in his first six, six, six seven games. Uh, he saw them qualify for the round of thirty two in the Europa League, um, and finished finished the calendar year strongly. You know, optimism. It's it's been a slightly underwhelming start to the twenty nineteen. You know, they went out on penalties to Monaco in the in the League Cup. Um, they've not really been at the same level in the league in their matches so far. Um, pretty uninspiring nil-nil draw um, with with Montpellier, and then prior to that, they lost two 0 at Basement Club Gangon. Um, so I, I would say it's 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 still on the underperforming side of things. But I think the squad the squad I think is certainly a lot better than ninth. Um, and I think they really should be looking to kick on. Um, and I'd see no reason, if I'm perfectly honest. When I look at the squad, I look at how other teams are struggling, I would see no reason why Wren couldn't you know, look for a top six finish again this season. Uh, Saint-Étienne currently fourth. Strasbourg fifth. Let's start with Saint-Étienne. Um, Wabir Kazri's been phenomenal for them. Um, as usual, they're a south... Well, yeah, as usual, they're a solid defensive team. They're not um, they're not as maybe stout as they were in some past years, but they're they're a good defensive team. They have some names you've heard of, Remy uh, Remy Cabela and uh, and the likes of that. And I think they're another team where anytime you watch them, they have a rabid crowd, great atmosphere, good looking jerseys. They're a team where you're like, wow, they could they could if Taken by the right ownership group, that's a team that could have some success. Like, they they have a rivalry with Lyon that's incredibly heated. We saw the Derby last week, how intense of a game that was. Is Saint-Étienne one of those teams, maybe like Bordeaux, where you're sitting on something that could be more than it is just in, in Europe in general? Yeah, I would identify Saint-Étienne as one of those that we uh, we touched on the very, very start of this, all about the new money coming into into France. Saint-Étienne is certainly a team that I could identify as next to be, and I'm surprised not more has been done to look at that, because they are 
there is a feeling of a sort of sleeping giant about them. You know, they've got the stadium, they've got the support, they've got a very solid squad. Um, they just seem to be lacking that monetary power, the financial firepower. You know, they don't spend big. Um, you know, evidence perhaps why they, you know, there is a sense that they overperform season after season. Uh, and you just feel with with a bit of uh, investment in this squad, they really could you know, really could start to break into that top three. That's that's where they've that's where they've failed to hit at the minute. They've always since they came back into the top flight, sort of fourth, fifth, sixth has always been sort of where they've come up, come about the sort of Europa League places. But you just feel that that club now is at the point where investment needs to come in because they really could break into that top three. And actually, they could make that top three their home on a more permanent basis mm. um, because the squad's there. You know, it's a it's a very solid squad. Um, you know, as you say, defensively very very sound. And you know, Nevin Sabotic, uh, Lerk Paran, two vastly experienced centre backs. Uh, they have Jan and Veer, who really now seems to look at home. I think he's found it perhaps a bit of a struggle since he left France when he, he left Rennes. Um, obviously, moved to Russia. That didn't really work out. He had a successful season at Sunderland. Um, but he's now he's now found found himself firmly at home, and I think he's back to his best now uh, at Saint Etienne. He plays alongside uh, Ole Selnas, who's been a really good player this season. Certainly, uh, one to keep an eye out on for slightly under the radar kind of moves, perhaps. Um, and then yeah, you've got creativity in in the likes of Cabela, uh, in the likes of Roman Hamouma, uh, and then Wabi Kasri who's been a fantastic sign. Obviously had a brilliant season with Wren last season to help them to get fifth place. Uh, Wren couldn't quite do enough to keep hold of him. He's only on loan from Sunderland. Um, but Saint-Étienne were able to sign him. Um, 12 goals in 19 games. You know, probably speaks for itself considering he's not what you would call an out-and-out striker. Um, but he's been terrific. He has been central to everything good about Saint-Étienne this season. Um, but yeah, they're a club that I really want to see make that next step. They've got everything. They've got history. You know, we we forget they were they were a dominant force in France. They were back French. In the, they were French football in the seventies. Yeah, exactly. Nineteen seventies. They were they were you know they were as you say they were the dominant force. So it would be nice to see that come back. You know, they have they've now sort of solidified their league and status. They're making Europa League places pretty much season after season. They now just need that final thing just to tip them over the edge, and I do think that needs to be some investment. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see if in the not-too-distant future that happened for the club. And um, we'll get to one more sort of high-profile team, just uh, to be complete about the whole thing. OGC Nice. Um, Luce, I thought, um, in even in the year where um, Jardim and Monaco won the title, I honestly thought Lucien Favre was the best coach. I really did. And I and that's not to take away from what Jardim did. But Lucien Favre took a Nice team that didn't nearly have the talent of PSG and um, Monaco. And for a while there, in fact, they were the 2016 winter champions. Like, they were the best. They had the best record in the league. People, people kind of don't remember that. But 2016, Nice were the top team going into, you know, the end of that year. And then Monaco obviously took off and Nice couldn't hang on for third place. But that 
that job that Lucien Favre did at Nice got him the job in uh, Borussia Dortmund, and clearly you see how good of a coach this guy is. He has Dortmund at the top of um, at the top of the Bundesliga. I feel like Nice are really sort of hurting after losing him because I just I just thought he was so good in the way he set his teams up. He was able to be defensive, but they like they gave a lot of teams problems. They countered well. Balotelli at that point had that's again where Balotelli became viable. This was a guy that had pretty much run out of you know European football real estate here, and you know he'd been kicked out of every club in Europe, and now he comes to Nice and he's scoring, and you have um, really good players around him at that time. Nice are currently eighth, which is respectable, but. What do they have to do to sort of maybe get them back to where that they were under Favre, or is that even possible? Oh, I think I think they could. Um, I think they need to sort out their backroom issues. So uh, Jean-Pierre Rivera, who's the current president, um, who's advised recently that he was looking to leave, a, a Chinese-American consortium came in and took majority ownership. Um, he wasn't really seeing eye to eye with them, so he's he announced that he... Um, and his, his, his vice president were going to look to leave the club. Um, it's recently been announced in the last sort of 24 hours that actually it might be a case that he's looking to front another consortium to buy out the um, the the uh, Chinese-American consortium that bought the club um, and that he would then stay on. So that's potentially going to cause a little bit of a mess behind the scenes. Um, in terms of on the pitch, you know, I think, Patrick Vieira probably deserves quite a you know, quite a bit of credit. I think that he was faced with a pretty tricky task. Yeah. Um, you know, he he lost um, Alisson Player in the summer. Um, he lost effectively. He lost Balotelli, who made it fairly clear in the summer that he wanted to leave, um, and just has barely played in the first half of the season. You have to remember that those two players last season contributed. I think it was about thirty-four goals. Of the um, 50 odd, can't remember the exact figure, 52, 53 goals that Nice scored last season. So you've got those out of the equation. That's quite a significant gap, and they haven't really um, brought any players in to to fill that gap. Um, so I think the fact that okay, I think Vieira got off to quite a tricky start, but he certainly steadied the ship. Uh, I think that's what this season was always going to be about. You know, first season after after Lucien Favre had gone, I think was always going to be about look stabilise. Let's just you know get a, a you know a, a mid table finish, and then we can look at moving on. And it was very much a case of this season being the season for Vieira to get his feet under the table um, at a European club. And I do think he's succeeding um, in that regard. I would like to see especially with Balotelli now officially gone, I would like to see Nice bring in, before the close of the transfer window, a striker. I do think there is a, a, a perhaps a lack of goals, but certainly I think he's got them fairly organised from a defensive point of view. I think his midfield is looking um, fairly strong, um, although rumours around uh, midfielder Adrian Temeze, who's been really good, I think, this season, but... Um, seems to be forever, forever linked this month with a move away from the club. Even though Vieira is desperate for him not to go, and the players desperate not to go, but the 
the uh, the board seem keen to cash in on him. If they can keep hold of him, if they can perhaps add one or two more players, especially a striker, then you know maybe there's enough that they could start to flirt with a European place. Mm. But I think I think primary objective this season was just a, a stable season um, for Vieira's first season, and so far, you know, as we move into the second half of the year, he's I think he's definitely definitely achieved that. All right, uh, so rapid fire. We have three teams currently in the basement. We have Gingham, we have Monaco, and we have Dijon. Um, is that how it's going to look at the end of the year? Who are the three, the, the two teams that automatically go down and the one team that gets the last chance playoff thing? Who would those three teams be for you? Right, I, I think both Gingham and Monaco will escape from that bottom two. Um it's slightly big call because I know they've got points to make up, but I think they will. I think you're probably going to, or potentially going to look at, at Amiens as a as an automatic relegation candidate, and I think Caen. I think this will be the season that they will they will go down. So I think Amiens and Caen will be the two, and I think probably Gangon will find themselves in that relegation playoff. Well, and can we just say a word for Caen because they've had two straight years where they've had to play PSG on the last week of the season. <laughs> And somehow have either won that game or drawn it to escape relegation. So they've somehow found a way to stay in the league. Same thing with sort of Angers have found a way to stay in the league. Like I think those are probably Amiens, Caen, and Angers. Dijon's down there too. You know, eventually luck will run out. I- I'm amazed that Angers is doing as well as they are, quite frankly, because they lost m- my favorite non-PSG league on players, Carl Tokoe-Kambi, who basically... I think accounted for like 50% of their goals. And they're somehow, they're still hanging in there. Well, I think Angers are an advert for sticking by your coach even when the going gets tough. Yeah. Uh, Stéphane Moulin has been at that club now for a, a good number of years. Um, and of course they stood by him when the going was well, you know, when it, everything was going well. But, you know, there were times last season where you feared for them, but they stuck by him. And they reward that. Whereas Caen, you know, they had Patrice Garon for a number of years. He left in the summer. You just wonder if upsetting the apple cart in that manner will be their downfall. Last question for you, Rich. Um, who are your, just if you, off the top of your head, the three players that nobody outside of French football is talking about that maybe in the next year or two are going to be the players that are being looked at as major transfer targets. So not the Indombales or the the Aurars, the the Hussein Aurars or that like, but the ones that nobody's really talking about yet, that you think are have a chance to break out in the next year or two. Ooh, that's a tough one. I think uh, Youssef Atal, uh, right back at Nice. Um, uh, you know, very very good player. This has been definitely been a breakout uh, a breakout year for him. Um, Really, really quality right back. Uh, has everything that you want. You know, he's great at going forward, good defensively. So I would probably put him in the mix. Um, I think uh, probably probably a lot of people have heard of him. So I may be I may be cheating here slightly, but I also may be guilty of a bit of nepotism as well. But I'd probably put Ismail Assar in there. Yeah. Um, I do think. Uh, Ren could face some big bids for him come the summer. Um, and in terms of a third player, um, 
Oh, well, if I wasn't going to go, for, again, it would be a bit cheaty. It would be a bit cheaty yeah. to, to to name Nicolas Pepe, yeah. um, considering a lot of people have heard of him. Um, who else? Who else? Who else? Um, oh, that's on the spot. That is that's. Well, yeah, why don't I throw? Why don't I throw a couple names in here that I've been I, I, like. He didn't play in the cup tie against PSG, but Kenny Lala's up there too. As yes. A, yeah. Kenny no, Lala's was, up there. Yeah. What will be interesting? He was. He's. He's been subject to a, a, a increased rumours lately because of just how well he's played this season, mm. and the sheer number of assists that he's got, uh, which is crazy for a right back. Uh, he's actually just signed a one-year contract extension with Strasbourg, which to me indicates they're going to cash in on him in the summer. Um. I don't think he particularly wants to move this January transfer window. I don't think the club certainly don't want him to go. But by signing that one-year contract extension, I think just there's a mutual agreement that they'll probably look to let him go in the summer, but obviously can then command a higher transfer fee. But yeah, top quality right back. So, Rich, uh, thank you so much for um, coming on, talking Lee Gun with me. And um, I, as I said about our... I think our listenership is kind of different, so I kind of really every year try to get um, some league on love into the PSG talk uh, uh, ecosystem. Like usually around the middle of the year, and I think I, you've been exceptionally, um, exceptionally, uh, I guess what would the word be? You've been exceptionally thorough in discussing sort of the. The big issues here in league on this year um rich uh, thank you so much for coming on anything uh anything you want to plug here before we write off uh well i mean mainly just french football weekly um and get french football news and uh at rich underscore allen 85 is my, my twitter handle yeah. uh but thank, thank you very much for having me on yeah and we've had and you know we've had our we've had our discussions um over the years and on certain topics which conveniently we really didn't talk about on this show which uh, I kind of wanted it that way because again I think we can agree that Lee Gun is it's growing it's fun to watch it's an it's an exciting drama filled on and off the field league when you really get into it and we just want people to to experience it to appreciate it and to patronize League One, you know, you want them to, you want people to watch it. More, pe- more eyes on the product. More people watching. More exposure. The better the teams get, the more money involved in the league. And I think that's best for everybody. So, again, uh, Rich, thank you so much. So, um, for PSG Talk, this has been Mark Damon saying au revoir for now.